Thank you, Miss Kelly. And you know, as you're packing those shoe boxes here in the heat of July, you can put on some Christmas tunes and dream of cooler temperatures, right? Pretend like it's December, uh, and that'll be a great thing. You know, uh, we can't, uh, by our dreams, change the temperature outside, unfortunately, but dreams can be powerful and inspiring. Have you ever had a dream so powerful and inspiring that it literally shaped the course of your life? Well, a guy named William Carey, young cobbler in England, he, uh, in the 19th century, he had that kind of dream. One night he had a dream that he was proclaiming Jesus to people from all over the world. And, and that inspired him to, to bring that idea of, of worldwide missions, overseas missions, to his church. But one older man at his church replied, Sit down, young man. If God wants to save the heathen, he'll do it without your help or mine. Well, he did not let that deter him. And while he's working day in and day out making and repairing shoes, he keeps thinking about this dream of his, and it inspired him to preach a sermon entitled, Attempt Great Things for God, Expect Great Things from God. And because he believed that so much, he would not let that dream go. He left England, went to India, and spent the rest of his life preaching and teaching the gospel. And it took years for him to see any fruit, but then slowly over time, dozens became hundreds, became thousands of people coming to Christ. Today, William Carey is considered the father of modern-day missions. So yes, dreams can be powerful. They can spark our imagination. They can inspire us to make great sacrifices, to dare to expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. And many times we see in the Bible and, and even throughout history that God does speak to people through dreams, through visions, to call them to salvation or service or to make great sacrifices or to give them warnings that they should listen to. We can think of several Old Testament examples of God speaking through dreams and visions. We think of Samuel, young Samuel in the tabernacle. We think of Joseph, both the Old Testament Joseph and the New Testament Joseph. I think of Paul's Macedonian call to take the gospel to Europe. But we can't always trust our dreams, can we? Because we're fallen creatures. Our hearts and minds are tainted by sin. As Jeremiah warned, our hearts can be deceptive. So our dreams, yeah, they may come from God, but they also might come from our own sinful desires. They may come from our own selfish, prideful ego. They may even come from satanic influences. If we aren't discerning about dreams, they can literally become nightmares. And that's why Jude accuses the false teachers that he's been writing to these churches and to us to warn us about. He, re- he calls them people who rely on their dreams. See, the Bible has a balanced perspective on visions and dreams. Sometimes they are from God. Sometimes they're not. Spiritual wisdom and discernment is in knowing the difference there. So let's look together at Jude verses 8 through 10. Now remember, Jude is writing to really accomplish two things in his letter. One is to uh, lay out the challenge before us, the challenge of false teachers and false doctrine in our churches and culture. And so the first half of the book, he's kind of focusing on that. So we have one more sermon after today, kind of focusing on the problem. But then the last half, he issues this call to us to contend for the faith, to fight for the faith, and, and so we'll finally get to the how-to. What do we do 
because of this. But let's look at what he says in verses 8 through 10. In the same way, these people, relying on their dreams, defile their flesh, reject authority, and slander glorious ones. Yet when Michael the archangel was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body, he did not dare utter a slanderous condemnation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme anything they do not understand. And what they do understand by instinct, like irrational animals, by these things they are destroyed. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the reading of Your Word. We're thankful for the gift that it is and the challenge sometimes it is for us as we look into this mirror, Lord, and it reflects back to us things that make us uncomfortable. That there are things that we need to see. There are things that we need to address. And we can only address them and, and make changes by the power of Your Spirit. So we pray that Your Spirit, who inspired this Word, would apply its truths to our heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, the Greek word that Jude uses for dreams or dreamers here can refer to literal dreams, like you would have you know, sleeping at night. Or it can also include the idea of visions, of revelations, notions or ideas that you say that you've been awakened to or enlightened to. Uh, what even we might think of as daydreams. So that word can encapsulate all of that. And as I said, there's no doubt that God has communicated in the past through dreams and visions and messages from angels, but those instances are very rare and very specific. And I don't discount that God can speak to people today through similar means, or that God... In fact, there's some compelling stories from missionaries about how God will speak to people, Muslims coming to the faith in droves because of a dream they have about Jesus. I don't discount that God can do that, or that God puts dreams or desires, burdens on our hearts for certain people groups or certain causes that we care about. That's part of how God shapes us. But Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 tells us, Long ago God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. And in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. The difference between us and some of those people groups I mentioned or people in the Bible is that we have God's complete revelation of Jesus Christ as recorded in His inspired Word. And the Bible is authoritative and it is sufficient to teach us all we need to know about God, His wills, and His ways. It's the ultimate authority for us. And that means that any dream, vision, insight, idea that we may have has to be held up to the Bible because God will never contradict what has been revealed to us in His inspired and written Word. Scripture clearly warns us, in fact, against relying on dreams alone and speaks rather harshly about false prophets and those who claim their dreams as their authority. In Deuteronomy 13, it warns us about a prophet or someone who has dreams that if they arise among you and proclaim a sign or wonder to you, and even if that dream comes true, it says if that person is also teaching you to stray away from God's Word, to go after idols and turn from the Lord. It says don't listen to those people. And in fact, put them to death. Verse 5 says, That prophet or dreamer must be put to death because he has urged rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the place of slavery. They're trying to turn you away from the Lord your God and what He has commanded you to walk in. You must purge the evil from you. 
In Jeremiah chapter 23, which I know uh, many of you studied in Sunday school this morning, we heard part of it in our Old Testament reading. Well, he goes on in verse 25 to say, I have heard what the prophets who prophesy a lie in my name have said. What have they said? I had a dream. I had a dream. How long will this continue in the minds of the prophets? Prophesying lies. Prophets of the deceit of their own minds. Through their dreams, they tell one another, they plan to cause my people to forget my name as their ancestors forgot my name through bell worship. The prophet who has only a dream should recount the dream, but the one who has my word should speak my word truthfully. For what is straw compared to grain? This is the Lord's declaration. Is not my word like fire, like a hammer that pulverizes rock? Therefore, take note, I am against the prophets who steal my words Uh, who use my own tongues to make a declaration. I'm against those who prophesy false dreams, telling them and leading my people astray with their reckless lies. It is not I who sent or commanded them, and they are of no benefit to all these people. This is the Lord's declaration. And as you talked about in Sunday school this morning, I'm sure he says that a lot in this passage. He wants to make sure we know this is coming from God and not from him. So like Jeremiah, like Deuteronomy, Jude is sounding the alarm for us to test the spirits and practice sound discernment. Now, he's not telling us to outright reject any dream or idea or or insight, but he's warning us not to just uncritically accept any dream or idea or vision either. Any teaching, any insight, any message, any idea that's claimed to come from God through a dream or vision must be held up to what God has clearly revealed to us in the Bible. That is how we separate what is true and divine from what is false and worldly. Now, what are the dreams that people may be having today that we should examine against Scripture? They may not be literal dreams. They may not be what we would think of as prophetic visions. But there are those who claim to have new insight into who God is and how He created us to be and and how best we should live life. And they reject 2,000-year-old standards and doctrine in favor of a new enlightenment about God and a new humanity. Recently, Adena Community Lutheran Church in Minnesota went viral for replacing the Apostles' Creed with what they call the Sparkle Creed that claims God is non-binary, uses plural pronouns, that Jesus, who it says wore a fabulous tunic, had two dads, that love is love is love, and calls the Holy Spirit the rainbow spirit. Another so-called progressive preacher recently preached a sermon about how drag is holy and described the incarnation as God wearing drag. And he also claimed that Jesus was non-binary. At Duke University's School of Theology this past month, they conducted pride worship services where they glorified, quote, the great queer one, fluid and ever-becoming one. And their opening prayer called God drag queen and trans man and gender fluid and capable of limiting your vast expression of beauty. What is happening in this country? As Jude said, these people relying on their dreams defile their flesh, reject authority, and slander glorious ones. Tony Perkins, president of the Family Research Council, said about all this last week, once you reject the Word of God, you can end up anywhere. Amen? 
This modern idolatry, and that's what this is. This modern idolatry is what happens when we try to create God in our own image rather than seeking a relationship with the One who created us in His image. And so Jude shows us that such godless dreams become nightmares. Rejecting the Bible as their authority, the false teachers of today, just like these 2,000 years ago, appeal to dreams and their own imagination and other sources out there in the culture as the source of revelation of truth and the justification for their sinful lifestyles. And we're seeing the nightmare that results in our world today. Rampant homelessness, unjust wars, unchecked human and drug trafficking across our southern border, fueling a humanitarian crisis, skyrocketing suicide rates and depression, rapidly declining standards in schools across our nation, an epidemic of confusion among young people about their God-given gender with so-called experts and leaders out there cheering them on to do irreparable harm to their bodies and souls. Shameless perversions being displayed in the light of day and encouraging children to not only applaud them but aspire to them. Jude warns us that when we follow godless dreams, we all end up in a nightmare. And that's what we're seeing today. But it's not too late for us to wake up to the truth about what is happening around us and to do something about it. Jude presents us in this passage two dreams. These People think these are good things. These are dreams that they have, and for each of them he gives us two nightmares that actually result from it. The first is the dream of progressive morality, a new morality a new ethic, a new standard. But in reality, it leads to a nightmare of sexual defilement. He starts there in verse 8 by saying, in the same way. What he's doing, he's connecting these verses to his first set of evidence. The Old Testament examples of Israel's unbelief, the angels' rebellion, and Sodom and Gomorrah's immorality. He used those examples to indicate the certainty of God's judgment on these sinners and these false teachers. But now, in these verses, he's going to lay out specific sins these false teachers are guilty of. They were claiming special revelation through dreams as justification for their immoral lifestyles, letting their dreams and philosophies override biblical teaching and defiling or polluting their own bodies. These people, as so many so-called Christians and churches do today, claimed divine approval for their lifestyles, for their sexual sin, for their beliefs that they were using to justify and excuse themselves. Now, we talked last week about the level of sexual depravity these false teachers must have not only been engaged in, but promoting to others that Jude compared them to Sodom and Gomorrah, the poster children for sexual sin, right? Lust, illicit sex, all kinds of perversions, including homosexuality running rampant. They were choosing to walk in the flesh rather than the Spirit, to obey their earthly appetites, and they allowed sin to reign in their mortal bodies. And they celebrated it. They were proud of it. They wanted to be cheered for it. Sound familiar? Much as our society today, in the wake of the sexual revolution and the legalizing of same-sex marriage, these false teachers thought they had reached the dream. They were living the dream consequence-free sexual liberation. Love is love is love, right? You do you, follow your heart, don't let anyone change you. That's the message of our culture. If it feels good, do it. 
And it seems that the only ethic, the only restriction our culture has regarding sex is that it's consensual. As long as it's consensual, it's okay. But this new progressive morality is no dream. It is a nightmare. Human trafficking is on the rise, mostly driven by prostitution and pornography, which itself has become an epidemic. Sexually transmitted diseases and abortion are among the results of so-called free love and the hookup culture. Confusion about God has created us in His image as male and female and the very purpose for sex and marriage. I saw a statistic this past week that, that there are more men over the age of 40 now who have never been married than ever in human history. Marriage, family, child-rearing, our society is unraveling because these things have been so devalued and replaced by an emphasis on adult pleasure and sexual autonomy above all else. And we are experiencing a cultural nightmare of sexual, moral, and relational defilement. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. The Christian sexual ethic, the way we glorify God with our body, has always been between a man and a woman committed to each other in a covenant marriage relationship for life. And sex is is what God uses for that one flesh union with the potential of producing children. Any sexual activity outside of that, the Bible limits to celibacy to the glory of God. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, you can reject that and reject the clear teaching of the Word of God if you want. But don't pretend that the Bible says anything different than that. That's why our culture is in a nightmare of sexual defilement because we bought into the dream of this progressive new morality. But the second nightmare that results from that is the nightmare of spiritual defiance. Notice the connection. If you look through verses 4 through 8, first you see the sensuality and sexual morality that defiles and distorts the grace of God. Jude connects that to how God dealt with the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. That this, is, this is how God judges this. Then he connects the fallen angels' rebellion against God's sovereign authority with these people who are denying God's Son and rejecting His authority. Now, the Greek word here uh, that he talks about authority is the word that means lordship. It's the lordship of Christ. And there are many people today who don't want to live under the lordship of Christ. They claim the name of Jesus, but they don't want Him to be their Lord. They don't want to be held accountable to a Bible-believing church. They claim to believe in Jesus. They proclaim the gospel, but the Jesus they believe in is not the Jesus of the New Testament. They are proclaiming a different gospel, one of a cheap grace, and a God who is neither holy nor just. Now, both Isaiah and Jesus warn us about these sorts of things and warn us against falling prey to this kind of thinking in Isaiah 29:13. It says, "These people approach me with their speeches to honor me with lip service, yet their hearts are far from me." Quoting that, Jesus goes on, he says, "This people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands." And then he goes on in the Sermon on the Mount to end kind of towards the end of his sermon, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, do many miracles in your name? And I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Again, as I said last week, we've got to be careful. 
that we don't put ourselves on a high horse and just point our fingers at the culture around us about these things. We need to ask ourselves, how much are we obeying Christ's commands? Are we submitting ourselves under His Lordship? In the daily living of your life, are you setting yourself up as your own authority? Or are you bringing yourself under the authority of Christ? Do you have an attitude that says, no one's going to tell me what to think or what to do or how to live? Not that preacher, not the Bible, not God. That's your attitude? You may say, well, I would never say that. Maybe not. But is that what you effectively say by the way you live your life? We fool ourselves into thinking that we could live full, joyful, purposeful lives on our own. But we're playing the fool if we think we don't need accountability and if we don't think that we aren't submitting to someone or something's authority over us. We're all submitting to something. We're all bringing our lives under someone's leadership. 2 Peter 2.19 says they promised them. And, and again, Peter's talking about these same kinds of false teachers. He says they promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption since people are enslaved to whatever defeats them. You see, true freedom, as much as we heard in our New Testament reading and, and as Kelly explained in the children's sermon, it's not found in indulging the desires of the flesh and giving into temptation. That's the way of suffering, of separation from those that we love, and of falling enslaved to sin to the point of death. Rather, as Paul said in Galatians 5, we should walk in the Spirit so we don't fulfill the desires of the flesh. It's by walking in the Spirit that we experience true freedom. Paul wrote to Timothy. He said, flee youthful lust. And James says that when we do resist the devil and we, and we turn away and flee from sin and submit to God, draw near to God, he says then the devil will flee from us. And that's, that's countercultural stuff today because the spirit of our age is one of personal autonomy. That word autonomy literally means self-law. You're a law unto yourself. You call the shots. You know better than anyone, including God, including the Bible, you know better than anyone how you should live your life, who you really are on the inside. You are going to do what your heart desires. You're going to follow your dreams no matter what. That's just another ancient dream wrapped up in modern-day clothes. Because that's the second dream that Jude warns us about. He warns us against this, this new progressive morality, but secondly, he warns us about the dream of personal autonomy. That I, I'm, just gonna, I'm, I'm my own boss. I, I'm going to look out for number one. I'm going to do what I think is true and right. And it leads to two nightmares. First, it leads to a nightmare of selfish arrogance. There at the end of verse 8, Jude talks about slandering glorious ones. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, some people think he's talking about human dignitaries, you know, like the you know, governors and the Caesars of Rome. Others say, no, he's talking about church leaders and apostles. But the problem with that is that the Greek word doxos is only ever used in the New Testament to refer to angels, to heavenly beings. And it makes sense because that's in the context. Everything Jude has been talking about, he's been talking about angels, Right, who rejected God's authority and rejected their spheres of influence. He then uses this kind of bizarre example we'll get to in a minute about Michael, the archangel. So it kind of makes sense that he's talking about angels. But what kind of angels? Good angels or fallen angels? Because that's what he just talked about, right? 
Up in verse 6, he talks about these fallen angels who have rejected their spheres and, and, and all that. We talked about that last week. And here in a minute, he's going to mention Satan. So there are some who claim that he's talking about demons. And so these false teachers are rebuking demons. They're assuming a spiritual authority that they do not have. And there's a good argument to be made for that. But the problem, again, is that doxus is never used in the New Testament to refer to a demon, only to angels. Because demons are no longer glorious ones, are they? They've rejected their glory. And why would Jude be worried about slandering demons for? So I think the best interpretation of this verse is that the false teachers were considering themselves to be greater than even the angels. And it makes sense. They've already rejected God's authority over them. They're claiming dreams as divine approval for their sexual immorality. They're rejecting the authority of God's Word. So why wouldn't they look down against the angels and speak blasphemously against God's holy messengers? Now Jude then uses a very unique illustration here. Uh, probably some of you guys know what I'm preaching about today. What's David going to say about this whole thing about Michael and Satan arguing over Moses' body? What's that all about? Well, apparently it's based on a Jewish tradition about an account that's not recorded anywhere in the Bible. Okay, so, so this is the only place in all the Bible that refers to this. But obviously, since it is in the inspired Word of God, there must be some truth behind this Jewish tradition at the time. But since it is the only place we read about this, we have to be careful we don't read too much into it, right? Don't make the Bible say what it doesn't say. But it seems that after Moses died on Mount Nebo, God must have sent Michael the archangel to retrieve and bury Moses' body. Deuteronomy tells us that when Moses died up on Mount Nebo, that God took his body and buried it. He didn't want Moses' burial place to be known because it might become a shrine the people might start to worship there. That might be one more excuse for them not to go over the Jordan into the Promised Land. So we know that that happened, and, and perhaps maybe that was Michael's job, that God was using him there. And, and it seems that Satan had other plans and, and in some way tried to thwart God's efforts there. So whatever that was about, Michael did not presume to even accuse Satan himself, but to leave him up to God's judgment. And that's the application is that if Michael, as the chief of angels, with all of his heavenly authority, did not presume to judge Satan, then how could human beings be filled with so much pride that they would insult angels, glorious ones? Not talking about wicked, evil Satan, but holy, glorious angels. How can any human be so prideful? Jude's making a sharp contrast to illustrate the absurdity of what these false, teach these false teachers were presuming that they could somehow judge, mock, and ridicule God's heavenly messengers. Now, Second Peter gives us a little bit of insight into this as well. In, in chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, he's also talking about those who follow the polluting desires of the flesh and despising authority. He calls them bold, arrogant people. They're not afraid to slander the glorious ones. And Peter makes, us, makes it clear here what he's talking about because he says, however, angels who are greater in might and power, do not bring a slanderous charge against them before the Lord. So unlike the fallen angels, back in verse 6, who rejected their proper places and positions and assumed authority that wasn't theirs, Michael and the glorious angels keep themselves in their proper places of authority. In Second Peter there, it says that they're not even willing to accuse those who are slandering them meaning the false teachers. 
They understand that's not their place. That's up for the Lord to judge. But these false teachers, in their hubris, despised authority, spoke evil against what was holy. And in the end, they just revealed their sin and their ignorance. Listen, Christians should give no place in their hearts for arrogance, rebellion, or pride. Like Michael and the angels, we should accept our places and positions in God's kingdom. Now again, that's a counter-cultural approach. In a world where people ignore God's authority, scoff at what is holy and glorious, and reject accountability to a community of believers. We need to stand against the self-serving, self-centered focus of my will, my ways, my wants, nothing else. We need to stand opposite of that. Because if we don't, we'll end up in a nightmare of selfish arrogance. And how sad is it to be prideful and to think you know so much and to think that you're so glorious and you deserve to be at the head of the table and discover that you're not. And you don't. And that's where these people are. But the second nightmare to this idea of personal autonomy is a nightmare of spiritual ignorance. Look again with me at verse 10. But these people blaspheme anything they do not understand. And what they do understand by instinct, like the rational animals, by these things they are destroyed. Now notice the connection back with verse 8 with this word blasphemy. These prideful people believed, they thought they understood heavenly things, but they were way out of their depth. Paul wrote to Timothy about not letting people teach false doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. He says, These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. Now, the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and turned aside to fruitless discussions. They want to be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they're saying or what they're insisting on. There's a lot of that going on today. And this isn't the only place that the Bible talks about those who think they know and understand the things of God, but their minds are of the flesh. They're darkened in their understanding. They claim a higher knowledge or spirituality, but in reality they're they're ignorant of the true spiritual world. All they really know about is their instinctual desires. And so Jude's making the point that when people rebel against God, they sink to their most base level. They become like beasts. They become slaves to their own appetites and desires like animals. And Jude says that is going to be their undoing. That's going to be the cause of their destruction. They will suffer the consequences of their spiritual arrogance and ignorance, not only in this life, but for all of eternity, unless they repent, unless they turn from their arrogance and give their hearts and minds to Christ to let Him renew their minds and transform them from the inside out into people who have spiritual minds, who are led by the Spirit in their heart. Paul writes about this in Romans 8. He says, For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. Now the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. And again, church, we need to watch out so we don't follow their bad example of spiritual ignorance and selfish arrogance masking as enlightened autonomy. 
Don't follow that example. Because there are a lot of people today who claim to be free and liberated, but really they're just slaves and prisoners of their own lusts, hungers, and basic instincts. They claim to live for God, but really they're just living for themselves. Don't be like those who profess to know and worship Jesus, but by their lifestyles they blaspheme His gospel and bring shame to His name. Jesus didn't die on the cross so we could live in sin and express our desires like animals. Jesus didn't die so we could live for ourselves. He died so that you and I could be set free from sin's penalty, power, and someday its very presence. He died so that we could live as the people that God created us to be, to bring glory to God by being made and remade in His image. Jesus died to wake us up from the nightmare of sin. And maybe today you're feeling conviction because you know that's your life. You're living the nightmare of sin. You've rebelled against God. You've been living as an authority to yourself, rejecting what His Word says, instead following whatever dreams it is you've been following, whatever ideas and notions you've been living by. And you maybe you're suffering some of the consequences, the nightmare of that dream. Listen, whatever it is you're suffering in this life is nothing to be compared to the eternal consequence of separation from God in an eternal hell. Jesus is the only one that can wake us up from that nightmare. And He wants to do that today. If you'll acknowledge your sin and your need for a Savior and turn in faith and trust to Him, bring yourself under His lordship of your life. And the Bible says you'll be saved. You'll be washed clean. You'll be made new. You'll be set free. And you'll have the assurance of eternal life in heaven. Do you need to do that today? If you do, I invite you to come in just a moment, and I will be glad to help you take those steps. Christian, maybe God has been speaking to you. Maybe as a believer, looking in the mirror of Jude has been a little difficult. Maybe there are some of these areas in your life that you've begun to buy into the philosophies of the world. You've begun to rely on dreams instead of God's Word. Maybe God is calling you today to lay those ideas, to bring captive to Christ those thoughts, as Paul says. And let Him give your heart and mind the true peace of Christ. The altar is open. I'll be standing here to pray with you if you would like. Maybe God is leading you to unite with this church family, or maybe He's put a dream in your heart for ministry or missions, and you want to answer that call and follow Him. Whatever God is speaking to you, let's obey Him. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we're thankful for this challenging word. Lord, it's difficult sometimes to look at the reality of the world in which we live and and even to look into that mirror of Scripture that points out areas in our life where we've been influenced, not by the truth of Your Word, but by the messages of our world. So God, I pray that You would give us humility. I pray that You would speak to our hearts and help us to be obedient to what You've said today. In Jesus' name we pray.